It's a pleasure to be back with you. It's a pleasure to see you. And more importantly, a pleasure to be able to ask you to bring us up to date on uh, diagnostic and treatment issues that have arisen over the past couple of years about Lyme disease. Have you, a loved one, or a friend been affected with Lyme disease? There are many different ways to go about diagnosing and treating Lyme incorrectly, and very few ways to do it right. In this special podcast series, Scott Endicott, Dr. Ben Lockwin, and Tom Fox uncover the shortcomings in the current standards and practices and open up a dialogue about how we can better help patients with this disease. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for our capstone episode on, not keystone, capstone episode of Understanding Lyme Disease. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Ben Lockwin and Scott Endicott back. We actually haven't been together now for nearly a couple of years. Uh, as you know, uh, we recorded this pre-pandemic. So, gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be back with you. It's a pleasure to see you. And more importantly, a pleasure to be able to ask you to bring us up to date on uh, diagnostic and treatment issues that have arisen over the past couple of years about Lyme disease. So, Scott, uh, I guess, Ben, if I could maybe ask you to maybe bring us up to date from when we recorded this series pre-pandemic. Yeah, Tom, thanks for bringing the band back together again. It's great to be with you. And uh, where we left off pre-pandemic when we talked through a a five-day series, to recap is that Lyme disease afflicts about 350,000 people in the United States every year. Uh, We talked through how there's a particular organism, a bacterium called Borrelia burgdorferi that lives inside common species of ticks and people acquire via tick bites. Treatment consists generally of single antibiotics, either doxycycline or amoxicillin. Um, however, in, in some significant proportion of people, maybe 10 to 20% of patients that are treated, they have uh, post-treatment Lyme syndrome. So a, a constellation of symptoms, including fatigue, muscle and joint aches, brain fog, and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit before this in the green room about um, it being maybe a silent killer and whether or not it's a silent killer. I would at least say that it's a silent degrader of what it means to be a functioning person in society. Um, so there are uh, a couple dozen clinical trials that are underway currently um, for treatments for Lyme. Not everything looks very promising, but there, I think, are some glimmers of hope in both the diagnostic side and the treatment side. But hope isn't a viable strategy. So um, evolving science is a scientific work in progress. And I think to some degree, this this is uh, progressing in retrograde. Um, so uh, I think from the diagnostic end, Scott's the best person to pick this one up. What do you think? I can, uh, you know, I love to talk about diagnostics and, and obviously, uh, you know, biomarkers are uh, the, the fundamental uh, keystones, uh, to borrow Tom's word from earlier, uh, to, to really any new drug candidates, right? Being able to advance the, uh, the drug and therapeutic uh, world is, is completely dependent upon, you know, developing biomarkers that are, uh, enable clinicians, uh, diagnosticians to, uh, to accurately diagnose. And, as we all know, that the the big issue, one of the the, the big bugaboos uh, in the Lyme community, and frankly, just in the in the general infectious disease community, has been 
um, you know, moving beyond uh, the ELISA, um, uh, uh, you know, biomarker uh, descriptors that are uh, looking for, you know, um, certain, you know, aspects, but uh, looking to broaden that with the advent of uh, a lot of you know, genetic medicines, genomics, um, RNA, DNA science is happening. And so uh, on, on the exciting news front, you know, since we gathered in December of 2019 last um, and really sort of laid out a, what we saw as the, the path as it uh, has existed, there's a lot of, uh, of change that's come and, and, and change is a good thing um, in this case. Um, one in particular uh, company that I've actually worked with personally, full disclosure, um, Flight Path Biosciences, uh, has, is working um, right now on a uh, transcriptome-based uh, signature that they're able to develop through a uh, uh, diagnostic study that was done, a colorectal diagnostic study, that goes back and looks at the microbiome again, which, you know, as many of you who are in the Lyme community know, uh, the microbiome has long been a target for how to um, uh, understand and address uh, some of the basic uh, health issues that, that uh, uh, were addressed through uh, or um, uh, materialized through chronicity. And so a lot of those chronic diseases, um, there was always a belief, well, we're, we're, there's now actually science coming that's uh, beginning to look at how the microbiome um, uh, looks in chronic patients versus healthy patients, which is the study that uh, FlightPath uh, just ran. They're in the process of um, evaluating the RNA, DNA aspects of that, the transcriptomics um, and genomics uh, to really identify and build a biomarker model that um, uh, moves them further down the road to um, either a targeted uh, antibiotic candidate, which they have, uh, they call FP100. That's an early stage. I want to be clear. These are early stage, you know, potential therapies um, that they have been working with in a number of uh, different um, programs. So uh, a lot happening in that um, sector. Um, as we talk, there's roughly 26 to 39 um, various uh, clinical studies out on uh, clinicaltrials.gov, the um, website that hosts um, and registers essentially any active clinical study that's out there. And um, there are a handful, I'd say uh, about six to 10 uh, diagnostic uh, companies that are out there looking at um, how to address the, the biomarker aspect, um, understanding what's happening there in the microbiome, um, as well as in the, you know, uh, the broader physiology of the patient um, and advance this. So uh, lots of exciting stuff uh, that's happening out there. Uh, as I said, Flight Path Biosciences is, uh, is, is pushing the envelope and, and actually seeing some early stage uh, success in good news. So um, given where we were even just two, two years ago with no candidates, uh, I think there's a lot of good, good happening on that uh, front. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I agree. I think both from the treatment angle and, and the, the improvement in, in the approach in diagnostics, you know, I, I, I believe that improved diagnostics are a source from which useful consequences will be drawn. And I think the, the useful consequences of better diagnoses are to identify unmet patient populations of Lyme and other diseases. And this should propel us toward better solutions vis-a-vis -vis better medicinal treatments. So, you know, in, in the last series of podcasts, we shine a bright light on treatment inadequacies and... I kind of think it would be a crime to not address it with, you know, current models of thinking as, as Scott's gone into. And, you know, as far as the what's next in the medical therapies, I think that the horizon offers some uh, bright rays of light. So there are some combination antibiotic therapies, 
So namely, one of them is combining daptomycin, ceftriaxone, and doxycycline together. And we've mentioned a couple of these before as individual therapies, but combined, they've shown promise in reducing lingering biofilms and offering potential to patients who are underserved. Um, this is based on uh, just a, a pre-pandemic study that was done on a slow-growing variant form of Lyme. And the idea is that these people who have persister syndromes, so they, they continue to have persistent uh, unmet medical need, take this, this three-antibiotic cocktail, daptomycin, again, doxycycline, ceftriaxone, and together in mouse models in the trials, it cleared the Lyme infection. And there's also a new candidate molecule, which is an antibiotic called azlocillin, um, related uh, derivatively to penicillin. Um, it came on the horizon last year as a potential candidate and they did this, what's called molecular screening, where there were 8,000 competitor compounds. And out of these 8,000-ish molecules, this one turned out to be the most efficacious and also have the, the best safety profile. And it's been trialed in uh, animal models, uh, given at 7-day, 14-day, and 21-day intervals. Um, so that's for, for the treatment. And then, as we said before, you know, prevention beats treatment. Uh, almost every time, or frankly, I'll say every time, I'll go out on that limb. So Lyme vaccines still exist in the form of a few examples that are in the discovery process. There was a Lyme vaccine about two decades ago that was pulled from market, but uh, there's one candidate in particular in small clinical trials, and that one's being produced by Pfizer. It's an investigational multivalent protein subunit vaccine, and uh, Basically, you know, for those listeners, similar to how the COVID-19 vaccines work, this one focuses on what's called protein A. It's this dominant surface protein expressed by the bacteria when it's present in a tick. So this, this vaccine is codenamed VLA-15, and it's been given to 246 adults. Um, so that age range was 18 to 65. It was a three-dose regimen, kind of like we know about the COVID and the booster doses. This one was given at zero, a time zero, two months later and six months later, and it appears to be very effective. Uh, but remember, this is one shot on goal, and unlike uh, with coronaviruses in the past 24 months, unlike what's going on with coronaviruses, I want to reiterate, Lyme is going to continue to receive very little, relatively speaking, funding or attention making wholesale radical improvements to recognizing a solution, a very fleeting and evanescent goal. It's, you know, hard to go after things when there isn't the same amount of journalistic media, social media chatter about the issue. Um, so I'll, I'll park it there for a minute. Tom, you're muted, I think. I want to say a couple of things. One is you have to say prevention beats detection because I've now quoted you on that to the greater compliance community. So it's uh, <laughs> we're in stone. Both me and you are locked in on that. Um, uh, but the second thing is it's about awareness. And, uh, Scott, I think you spoke quite eloquently in our original five-part series about your own journey, your own struggles, 
and how you had to educate in many ways the people around you, including uh, treating physicians and other healthcare providers who are trying to help you. Since we recorded this, I've become much more aware, but there have been uh, several books on this topic by prominent uh, people. The most recent, Ross Douthart, 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 the conservative columnist on the New York Times, who came out with a book on his own uh, his own journey through being a Lyme disease sufferer and really what it has meant uh, up and down New England. And these types of stories really drove home to me the message that I wanted to try to communicate that you hit on, Ben, which is uh, this is perhaps not a silent killer, but it's a silent disease that people don't talk about uh, that impacts not simply the person infected with the disease, but the entire family. And that uh, awareness, uh, even if it's, I don't want to say coming out or coming out of the shadows, but the greater awareness we have, hopefully uh, the greater information will be available. But also it will lead to uh, perhaps a greater urgency to try to move forward with some of the both diagnostic and treat uh, treatments that uh, you both have talked about. Uh, but as we wrap up this, uh, this capstone uh, episode, I was wondering if uh, each one of you might give a really a few thoughts about what this series has meant to you and uh, where you might see, uh, if we came back together in a couple of years, uh, where you would hope we might be. So, uh, Scott, can I maybe start with you? Sure. I, I, frankly, I, I'm excited on a number of levels uh, about where things are going uh, for folks uh, newly diagnosed and, and those struggling uh, you know, with, with, uh, chronic, chronic Lyme's or persistent Lyme disease, uh, or, uh, what's also called uh, post-traumatic Lyme, Lyme disorder, right? So there's a, there's a few different, um, variants, uh, sort of trying to explain the chronicity, um, which is, which is not easy, uh, to describe, but I think as we're moving, you know, past this, I, I, I do believe that, um, uh, the, the microbiome, Science and, and the transcriptome approach uh, that that um, uh, even some of the studies I'm, we're professionally directly involved with, uh, I think, have a massive um, opportunity to to drive the science forward very quickly. Um, as we've talked about, even just getting better at diagnosing accurately and bringing um, you know more of an organized provider based um, model for you know protocols that advance beyond just, you know, two weeks of doxycycline, um, you know, as has been standard, even, you know, as Ben was speaking about, uh, you know, with the, the, the uh, tripartite um, model uh, with antibiotics care, uh, I actually went through a similar regimen eight years ago to, to uh, remove or uh, actually to uh, slow down a, a, a symptom outbreak that I had had for about eight to nine months. I was on three different, four different antibiotics uh, in rotation over about seven months that was able to uh, reduce my symptoms significantly. And so um, there is this sense of, you know, we're, we kind of cycle back to a number of these areas where folks that were outside of the, the you know, um, uh, infectious disease as well as the CDC treatment protocol um, are turning out to be right. And hopefully it's not, you know, too late for, for some of them who are many of many of them self-treating physicians who were also inflicted. And so I think as we look out, uh, I think in two years, we're going to see very interesting candidates. I think uh, the antibiotic candidates that are showing up um, are going to, to have uh, an efficacy, I think, a lot sooner. They're off the shelf. Um, so there's an opportunity to move them quicker 
you know, through the approval path uh, than they would, you know, a new, you know, therapeutic candidate, which will take five to seven years, right? So uh, I think given that, I think there's, uh, I think you'll see some change there. I think the diagnostic space is going to also, once you have biomarkers that are more accurately showing other than the current, you know, erythromyelogranes uh, rash and, you know, then defining the disease by symptoms um, or symptomology, uh, which is a very inaccurate way to, to diagnose. I think the, the 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 tighter we make that you know bullseye um, circle, and and the and the, the more often that we're hitting that you know bullseye at every turn, uh, you're going to see a, um, a a different level of awareness within the community, a different level of engagement. I think on the patient side, and then hopefully we'll see some, some massive growth um, on a, on a couple different levels in how uh, you know Lyme disease is not just treated but eradicated, as we have many other you know bacterial and uh, infectious agents. Ben? Yeah. You know, listening to that's got me thinking in, in a kind of a different direction. So I'll close with what I think is one of the most salient practical challenges. So get this. There may seem like there are infinite possible solutions to this or any medical puzzle, or frankly, for the listeners, business operational puzzle, whatever. But by myriad patients going to their providers' offices with litanies of different sham, maybe sham miracle cures, it makes the current good medicine seem so out of date, like there's this infinite inertia of the old ways and that medical practitioners aren't listening. And I think where we've gotten to is that that's in part true. But at the same time, there are those who aren't listening, but that doesn't imply that Here's the important point, I think. That that doesn't employ, impl imply that the thousands of sham cures are worth pursuing. So there's a loggerheads of two competing philosophies, the standard of care of clinical medicine and this continuously morphing, slippery notion of try everything. But the only way to make real advances in medicine is to subject these ideas to the real gold standard, which is randomized controlled trials, comparing blinded treatment groups against a placebo Correct. group then we don't leave the possibility of cure to chance or belief. So medicine ultimately shouldn't be about belief. It should be about evidence. And sham cures touted on the internet are only anecdotes, and the plural of anecdote is not data. So I think the bottom line is we can vaccinate against Lyme. We do have some evidence of more effective antibiotic regimes than are currently the standard of care, and we absolutely can diagnose people more effectively than ever before in history, and that's getting better, as we've heard. So scientific progress is never as fast as we hope, but is faster than we might expect. Well, gentlemen, I wanted to, to thank you for coming together to uh, capstone off this series. It's, uh, as I said, uh, I really learned a lot, and how I judge a podcast or a podcast series is how much I enjoy it and how much I learn. And I greatly enjoyed this series, but more importantly, I learned a lot more. I hope your listeners did. And I may ask you in a couple of years to come back and, and perhaps revisit some of these. I hope you've enjoyed this special series. I've really enjoyed doing this podcast series as, as much as I enjoyed the 9-11 series, which premiered earlier. I'm going to try to do some different types of storytelling, and I hope you will join me on this journey on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening.